Well, good evening, uh, everyone. Uh, my name is Joe Wolf. I'm the Dean of Arts and Humanities here at UCL and uh, also have the privilege of working with CIS. Uh, I'd like to welcome you this evening to tonight's inaugural lecture. Uh, my job is to do a number of things, but not to introduce the lecturer or the lecturer, but uh, most importantly, probably to invite you to the reception afterwards, which is going to be held in the cloisters uh, down the stairs. Um, the talk tonight will be introduced by Professor Jan Kubik. Uh, many of you will know Jan, those who don't. Uh, he is the new director of CIS, joined us just this year in January and is already making his presence felt. And uh, we're absolutely delighted that he is with us, uh, not just tonight, but at UCL. Uh, after the lecture, Professor David Ibbotson, who's Regis Professor of Civil Law and President of Clare Hall, Cambridge, will give the vote of thanks. Uh, Professor Ibbotson has very kindly come all the way down tonight, and so we're very grateful to him for that. So uh, it remains for me only now to introduce Professor Jan Kubek, who will introduce the lecture. Thank you, Jan. Well, I don't know if you know that our dean is the philosopher. So between a philosopher and a historian and a lawyer, you will get a social scientist, unfortunately. So I apologize that those noble professions and then there's something happens. <coughs> and um, well, this is a, a wonderful occasion. And uh, Professor Rady is the Masaryk Professor of Central European History at SEAS. Um, so what I would like to say, uh, a few words about how I uh, understand SEAS and um, the role of historians in it. Um, so what is the spirit of SEAS? The SEAS is the complex, as we always say, multifaceted and cross-disciplinary school that dwells on, on many different approaches, which means also that we learn a lot from each other. So what I want to share with you very briefly is what I have learned from reading Professor Rady's work, particularly the book, which will be perhaps related to uh, the talk, uh, the, the book is coming out uh, from Oxford University Press, and it's called Customary Law in Hungary, Court, Text, and Tripartitum. It will be published, I believe, this year. <coughs> Next year. August. August. August, August this year. <coughs> when you start reading this book as a social scientist, uh, I'm an anthropologist, uh, first of all. Uh, you immediately get sucked into that. And I started thinking, why is that? And this is the, uh, perhaps because the book touches on the central problem of social science, which is the problem of social order. Uh, one of the central problems of social science, certainly. And then the place of law among other regulatory systems, such as custom and tradition. Uh, this is certainly a central issue for people who, like myself, believe that the Weberian tradition of, of social science is uh, among the most important, and for me, perhaps, the most important tradition. <clears throat> so what we get in this book is a very careful, carefully developed, if we're looking for some theoretical elements that social scientists always look for in the work of historians. So what you get is a very careful argument it's the whole treatise, really, about the difference between customary law and common law. 
And for, for me, this helps to understand the difference between custom and tradition, which pretty often we tend to kind of put together. So Professor Rady is also an anthropologist, as I told him a moment ago. Uh, uh, he knew that. <laughs> <coughs> it is particularly a, a, a work in some sense of legal anthropology. So let me give you a, a quote from the very end of the book. It, for any, anybody who is an anthropologist, it will sound awfully familiar. The tripartitum was a book of customary law, but it was also customizing in the sense of lending the name of custom to practices and customize to the extent that its own content was altered by practices. This is really an anthropological prose. <clears throat> There's more in the work. Uh, there, the work illuminates one of the most puzzling problems of our region, which is Hungary's turn to the right. And uh, in a sense, the way my, my reading of this was, uh, uh, I was looking for, for help, trying to understand the, the problem which, which many people who study the region uh, puzzle over, which is the transition or a shift of Hungary from being liberal democracy, where the rule of law is central, to majoritarian democracy, where the will of the majority is central. So for those of us who sense that this dichotomy is too simple, this is a required read. Because the book covers the complex ground between what it means that something comes from the will of this or that group, or from custom or tradition, or from the law that is somehow written and passed in a more or less uh, organized fashion through this or that treatise. So this is what you get from that work, but there are many, many others. Uh, professor Rady was the professor of Central European history since 2004. Since then, he had a very long and extremely interesting career. He was, for example, I'm just giving you examples because this is a very long and distinguished resume, a warden at Hughes Perry Hall for quite some time in a very different uh, part of our activities. He was an election observer for OSCE in 13 different countries, Albania, Armenia, Serbia, Montenegro, and a few others. <clears throat> He is an honorary life member of Modern Humanities Research Association. He has a number of other uh, awards um, and uh, special uh, recognitions. Let me just quickly move to the, uh, some of the publications. Uh, there are several books, single-authored, co-authored editions, um, and a very, very long of list of articles. Among the books, there's, uh, in the order of the appearance, the medieval Buddha, it's not Buddha, it's Buddha, it's a part of Budapest, for those of you who don't know Hungary, <laughs> a study of municipal government and jurisdiction in the Kingdom of Hungary, Emperor Charles V, Romania in turmoil, a contemporary history, cultural atlas of the Renaissance, you can see the, the range, nobility, land and service in medieval Hungary, and finally, this, this book that, that definitely attracted my attention, Customary Law in Hungary. He also edited uh, a lot of um, uh, original uh, sources in, in several collections, uh, contributing in a very important way to the producing the body of uh, work that then others uh, can use. 
Among the edited and co-edited books, again to, to further show the range, um, there's a book called Towards a New Community, Culture and Politics in Post-Totalitarian Europe, uh, edited with uh, uh, Pete Duncan. Uh, Resistance, Rebellion and Revolution in Hungary and Central Europe, uh, edited with Laszlo Pete. And a very interesting work, very important work, In the Shadow of Hitler, Personalities of the Right in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, edited with Rebecca Heinz. So this is just a, a very brief uh, introduction to a, a very illustrious uh, career. Um, so please help me welcome Professor Martin Rady. Thank you very much, Jan, for those uh, kind words. I want, to, I want to start off just by making a couple of comments. Um, I was thinking about my friend Trevor Thomas, who was my predecessor uh, as the principal teacher uh, of Central European history at CIS. He was he's sadly been taken to hospital. He's all right. Um, he would have been here tonight. And he was very keen on punctuation and on the proper punctuation of the Habsburg monarchy. And as you may know, in the late 19th century, there was a tremendous row in the Habsburg monarchy over whether the, the titles imperial and royal should be conjoined with a full stop, a hyphen, or an and. This went on for quite a few years. Trevor knows the full details. Uh, and I want to suggest that in this lecture, there should probably have been a comma between pertinacious litigant and central Europe, because what I'm going to do is actually give a lecture in two halves. But like the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, it's going to be two unequal halves. Uh, the first half is going to be, the longer half is going to be on customary law and pertinacious litigants, and the uh, shorter half is going to be on Central Europe. The respective contents of the two will, however, be hyphenated. Uh, let me start off with a fictional case. It is contained in a volume of humorous essays by the politician and law reformer A.P. Herbert. It was written in 1927. Uh, the case concerns a man called um, Albert Haddock, who is a most pertinacious litigant, uh, and he has jumped from Hammersmith Bridge for a bet. Um, he is arrested by the police, although the police cannot work out exactly what crime he has committed, and he's taken before the magistrates. Uh, and the magistrates explain that... Um, it's not the job of the police to fit unusual crimes into categories. Since he has been brought before the magistrates, he must surely be guilty of something. And he is duly fined two pounds. He is a pertinacious litigant. And he takes the matter to the Court of Appeal. And the presiding judge throws out the appeal stating, it is not for me to say what offence the appellant has committed, but I am satisfied that he has committed some offence <laughs> for which he has been most properly punished. Now, this account was subsequently 
um, reported in America as if it were true, that it is pure invention. It is nevertheless the sort of case which is common in customary law courts. Courts adjudicated according to customary law throughout Europe, throughout most of Europe, for most of the Middle Ages, throughout a large part of Europe in the early modern period, and through large parts of Central Europe right through to the 19th century. We are dealing there for, with courts that are rather more than just the courts that anthropologists look at. These are courts that proliferate across Europe. Customary law courts are very strong on procedure. They know what procedures are and what they have to follow. The manner in which an action is commenced, carried through and judged is subject to very fixed rules. In the case of Hungary, there are 24 stages in an action and each of these has to be duly ticked off. It's a bit like a UCL document. <laughs> the substantive content of the law is, however, rather less certain. As in our illustration, the law is very much what the court decides it to be. And I just want to give two very brief examples. Um, both of them are far from, from Hungary. Uh, the first is from the uh, late 18th century. Two men have been drinking. Uh, they've been drinking in winter. It's snowing. And they decide to go home. And they're swaying around, making their way back. And one of them, when he arrives home, realizes that at some point his companion has disappeared. And in fact, his companion has fallen asleep in the snow and has been frozen to death. And the surviving man is taken before the court. And he is found guilty of negligence. Now, there's no such crime in Hungary at this time as negligence. He is thought to have been neglectful in respect of his companion and therefore to merit a penalty for which he goes to jail for a month. The second case concerns is from the uh, early um, 19th century and it uh, concerns a young man and this young man uh, has been absent from church. Uh, he, he's been heard swearing. Uh, and at some point he's been rude to his parents. The document says that he, he raised his fist to his parents. And he is taken to court and charged and jailed for the crime of being bad. <laughs> That's what he's done for. No specific crime is identified, but instead the general conduct of the young man is considered reproachable and an infraction is therefore to, thought to have been committed. Now in these cases, the courts are making up for an absence of statutory provision and of anything approaching a criminal code across large parts of our region of Central Europe, legislation was thin, partial, and only half remembered. To give a couple of examples, Poland 
as the Statute Wasquego, which is a collection of miscellaneous uh, documents, some of them from southern Italy, some of them from Germany. It's more a political compendium than a legal compendium. Upper Austria has even less than that. A committee is empowered in 1550 to draw up a code of Austrian law. It has still not completed its work by 1750. Uh, it takes time. Hungary is rather more fortunate. It has, from the early 16th century, a code of law, the tripartitum, but this is partial, flimsy, and in its content, and its provisions are routinely ignored. Of course, there is statute law. There is the law passed by diets, parliaments, in other words, uh, with the agreement and uh, uh, acceptance of the ruler. But these statute laws are not like laws and legislation in the modern sense of the word. They comprise instead mostly treaties between the parliament, the diet, and the king. They are mostly treaties and agreements about cash, taxation, and raising troops. Their substantive content is slender. Moreover, they are inadequately circulated. The reason is very straightforward. You don't get given a copy of the laws. You have to buy a copy of the laws. And many cities and counties just would prefer not to have to do this. They don't bother to actually buy the laws that have been circulated. Or if they do buy them, they think, well, this isn't quite right. We're going to make a few changes. We're going to amplify this provision. Or we're going to get rid of another provision. And then the amended copy that they have produced, this may in time be separately printed and become regarded as the authentic version of the law and get incorporated into compendia and other collections. I have a hope, it cost me a lot of money, two volumes of the Hungarian laws published in 1750 to 51. And this is the content of the law as it was understood to be. And when people start going through it at the beginning of the 19th century, matching this, the contents up with the other texts with which they're familiar, they discover that the text of the laws has 16,000 discrepancies. And this includes the length of the bar that, that is presumed to define the entire system of measurement in Hungary. So even that is at odds and different versions exist. So the result is that the criminal law and the civil law operate in a void. There is very little of reliable substance. And under these circumstances, the courts attempt to do the best that they can. At times, they act by simply trying to remember what they've done before, working on the basis that like cases should be judged alike. The problem, of course, is that cases aren't alike. It may well be that one of the litigants is an orphan, 
or a widow at this point you're supposed to go and say sigh and oh that's right thank you uh, uh, and the courts will you know pay attention to the needs of 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 the needy uh, or it may well be that the litigant is the crown fiscal at which point you boo because he is hmrc he is the tax man and the courts really don't like him or the court might just simply not recall how it's previously arrived at a decision. It knows that it made a certain type of decision at one point, but quite how it got there may not be recalled for the very simple reason that courts in customary jurisdictions very rarely give the grounds for a verdict. They, they issue giving any form of motivated decision. In Hungary, it is not until 1945 that decisions are given which are motivated. Decisions are given which explain how a verdict has been arrived at by reference to legal principles. The consequence of this was malleability, uncertainty and unpredictability in regard to the law. And this is summed up by Vladislas II at the beginning of the 16th century in respect of Hungary and he writes for as the laws themselves lack the support of the power of writing whatsoever of the law or custom was brought to the fore they most shamefully that's litigants most shamefully confused in respect of the reasonableness of its judgments either by dragging in a contrary opinion or by asserting that it was otherwise opined and understood by other judges in other cases. Thus it frequently happened that in one case someone previously had won and in the same or similar circumstance another lost and was defeated. And Vladislas's words were put into verse by the humanist Hieronymus Balbi. And I'm going to give you his they're, they're in translation, don't worry. And I think this sums it up even more nicely. Justice uncertain, the suit in doubt, unheard the plea, though loud the shout. The son robbed, O shame, of his father's land, his fortune stolen by another man's hand. In cases the same, the verdict not. Be victor now, next day in the dock. Despite Vladislas's endeavors the unpredictability of which he and Balbi spoke continued to prevail I've got a number of instances I could give of this but I'm gonna just summarize and explain if you like the basic point at work um, one of my most memorable recollections in doing research was working in the Hungarian National Archive one evening with the light streaming through the, the, the sunlight uh, streaming through the window and opening some of these great books which record legal judgments. And these books had not been opened, I think, since two or three hundred years. And as I opened the pages, the 
oxidized silver from the ink was cast up in great shower of tinsel, um, which was a most remarkable um, vision to see this oxidized ink pouring up. And of course, I behaved badly. Um, I immediately thought this was mercury and that I was about to be poisoned by mercury. Um, but nevertheless, I went back to, to the manuscripts and, and books and looked at them. And the one point that came through was every account, every lengthy legal description of a case ends up with a verdict, with a decision and judgment that runs completely contrary to everything we think we know about Hungarian law. Hungarian law stresses partible inheritance. It stresses the rights of sons to succeed. It stresses the rights of collateral relatives to be able to veto sales. And you go through these cases, and the judgments at the end deny those principles, the basic proto-norms, as lawyers sometimes refer to them, the proto-norms are readily set aside and perverse judgments are, are recorded. To give one account, 1770s, typical aristocratic woman in Transylvania. <laughs> she doesn't pay tradesmen, right? She doesn't pay tradesmen. I mean, why should you? Um, you know, it's good enough that you allow them to do work for you. And eventually she is indicted and brought before the county court of Cluj. And the county court says to her, if you don't pay up according to a schedule that we are going to give you, we are going to confiscate your land. Now that land doesn't technically belong to the widow at all. It belongs to her husband, and it belongs by extension to the larger family kindred group to which she, of which she is a member. And yet the court is prepared to turn on its head notions of collective ownership of land in order to go and satisfy the aristocrat's creditors. This is the type of case that one finds, and one finds repeatedly amongst the tinsel in, on an evening. What is actually happening here? And I think we can turn to A.P. Herbert again, and to another fictitious case. And that case is Dahlia Limited versus Yvonne, which concerns uh, the negligent provision to a company of a poisoned bum. And what happens in this case is very straightforward. Uh, Yvonne, the provider of the poisoned bum, Yvonne is um, uh, found uh, 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 to have been negligent and uh, is uh, 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 made to pay damages. And her barrister appeals and takes it to the Court of Appeal and takes it, in fact, to the, to, to the law lords and they find, similarly, against Yvonne. And the barrister argues that, nevertheless, uh, Yvonne should not have to pay the costs of the case. Uh, and he argues it on the grounds 
that the decision of the law lords was so unexpected that it constituted an act of God. <laughs> this being something which no reasonable man could have expected. He goes on to argue that the composition of the tribunal made its judgments sufficiently beyond prediction, that a decision made by the Lords was possessed of an element of uncertainty so great as to make the event incalculable. It thus amounted to an act of God on which, on which grounds uh, no costs should be paid since his client could not have foreseen the judgment. And he went on to explain, in this tribunal there are five judges, not one judge, so that the chances to be calculated are much more various and numerous. Where there is one judge, he is either dyspeptic or he is not. But where there are five, three may be dyspeptic and two not. One may be irritable, one deaf and three dyspeptic. And so he goes on and eventually the court uh, uh, throws out the case and cruel words are sent to the, bar said to the barrister. Um, nevertheless, I think a very important point has been made here. And that is the composition of the court influences the judgment. Nothing could be more mistaken, I think, to see customary law courts as in some way analogous to common law courts. Customary law courts were not staffed by professional lawmen, lawmen and the manner to wit in which they adjudicated was not loyally. And I'm just going to bring this home by showing some illustrations. Uh, I've got copies of these illustrations if people uh, want to collect these at the end uh, and um, muse over them. Um, I made copies because I just don't trust uh, electronic equipment, uh, but so far we seem to be lucky. Um, I want to give you a picture of the lowest level court operating in Hungary in the 19th century. This is an Austrian official who has been appointed in the 1850s to oversee the administration of the law in Hungary. And here we have him turning up to a village court. As you can see, this does not look like a loyally assembly of people. Um, I think rather remarkable pipes that they all have. This is at the lowest level in the 1850s. And I now have a picture of a small market town's equivalent. I know this looks a little bit like a moustache competition. Uh, the actual... This is... I mean, some of them are they're very fine, but this is the actual uh, town council here that will operate in the capacity of, um, of a court of law. These guys standing around at the back, um, they are sort of eminent people who will be called upon to give their opinions and help out. These are the policemen at the bottom. There are three of them there. This bloke is the town drummer. 
Okay, he he has two roles or several roles. Um, he's I think got the finest of the moustaches. Um, uh, he gives out the news, bangs his drum, gives out the news in the morning, gets people out of bed by banging his drum. Uh, he also operates, uh, will be in charge normally of the village jail. So his job will be to duff people up. Um, seriously, that's the way that they extract uh, confessions. Um, uh, as you can see, this, I mean, they may be nicely dressed with... Uh, pleasant hats on and walking sticks. Uh, this guy is the, uh, is the mayor. Um, but nevertheless, we are dealing with an assemblage of non-professionals. We are dealing with a lay court. And we've got courts that go up above this. We then move into manor courts. Manor courts will regularly have 30 people in attendance at them. They will include local freemen. That's the, 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 the man who runs the post office. He will be attending the court and helping to arrive at uh, judgment. The local wagoner, because he's a freeman who transports stuff. Um, village headman will turn up in order to... Um, uh, uh, that's one of these guys that I showed you just earlier. People like that will turn up to give their views as well. Visitors, distinguished visitors, will, um, will sometimes uh, play a part. By the time we're moving up, we're dealing in the, the counties. And the counties increasingly will have a body of professional scribes and people who may know something about the law. But nevertheless, the majority will be ordinary noblemen who will be participating in the legal process. And this continues all the way up right to the top. I have not got, there are very few pictures of the higher level Central European courts in operation. This is probably the, uh, the best one. And this is from 1530, and it shows a Bohemian high court in operation. Bohemia, the Bohemian courts, as we know from Chris Nicholson's work, and he's in the audience here. Um, Chris Nicholson has written extensively on the operation of the law in 16th century Bohemia. And this is probably the most sophisticated type of law court in Central Europe in the 16th century. And as we can see, it nevertheless is quite a crowded court. We have the king, normally it would be his surrogate uh, who would be participating. And here we have various people. These are noblemen. They're all called judges, but most of them are uh, not trained lawyers at all. They are instead people whose knowledge of the law depends upon their practical experience and what they've understood in their daily life as to how the law actually should function. Uh, the chap in the middle is, I think, HMRC. Um, he is the Crown uh, Fiscus. As we can see, 
Some of these are talking amongst themselves. One of them is asleep. Um, one of them is annoying his neighbour. Um, the point that I would make, therefore, is that these are lay courts. They are lay courts in the sense of not comprising members of a professional cast of lawmen. Moreover, these are courts that interact with each, with each other, so that decisions that are made at the very lowest level of the court hierarchy by those guys in the funny hats and with the pipes, their ideas and presumptions will be conveyed through the judicial hierarchy and begin to inform developments right at the top uh, of, the, of the judicial pyramid and vice versa. There will be a flow. Studies of customary law from the late Roman period onwards are divided between whether the customary law constituted a Volksrecht originating out of popular observance and opinion or whether it was a Juristenrecht, whether its content was decided juridically and by the courts. I would argue that it was both, and I would argue that the composition of the courts fundamentally affected uh, the way the courts arrived at their decisions. How did courts think? How did they act? And I want to make just a couple of comments about this. I think an important understanding of the way that courts arrived at decisions is provided not in Central Europe, but in the very wonderful records that survive from the Swiss Pays de Vaux um, uh, in the 15th century. Here, witnesses, or as they were known, consuetudinarii, the people who could vouch for custom, were sometimes interrogated not only as to what the customary law was, but what the law, in an almost metaphysical way, might be. And they replied, and we've got these wonderful records of these Swiss peasants when they are asked, what is the law? And they say, the law is the equivalent of truth and justice. It is the equivalent of what comports with good conduct and with the idea that each man receive his due and that no one be harmed. That was what these ordinary people who attended courts and decided what the law was, that was what they believed the content of the law to be, or what it should be at least. They were regarded at the time by the professional lawyers as being comedy characters. They had, so it was maintained, no comprehension of distinctions in law. They spoke in a vulgar fashion. But nevertheless, I think, the interest of these ordinary people in producing judgments that were fair and equitable is one indication, I think, of why customary law courts should often return decisions that are completely at odds with what we think 
we know about the law in the medieval, early modern, and even modern periods. It is as if they, it is as if they concurred with A.P. Herbert's regrettably fictional Lord Chancellor, who says, so long as I sit upon the woolsack, whenever an appeal discloses a divergence between the common law and common sense, it will be my practice to be guided by the latter. I think a further obstacle, however, to loyally solutions in customary law courts lies with our old friend, the pertinacious litigant. Our litigants are pertinacious. The litigants one comes across. They are very insistent. They are not great believers in something called the law, but they are great believers in what they call their rights, their jura, their potestates, their yushok in Hungarian. And they will come to court fully armed to support those rights. They will bring with them hundreds of documents, almost entirely irrelevant to the case, but which they believe in some way will contribute to it. Uh, their lawyers will play their own part as well. Remember, they're paid more or less by the hour, so it's a good idea for them to try and drag things on for as long as possible. The lawyers will question whether their opponent is fit to plead. They'll question his sanity. They will question the sanity of the court. Uh, they will introduce red herrings. There's one where they, in the uh, beginning of the 19th century, Hungarian court uh, uh, introduces um, uh, Sir William Blackstone, an English lawyer, introduces Blackstone as a persuasive authority in Hungarian law. And so the court has to go and consider at great length whether Blackstone actually is. And the court will then be invited to attend a compurgation whereby the litigant uh, will marshal witnesses to speak to his good character. In the 14th century, one of these pertinacious litigants brings 3,000 people to purge themselves and say he is a reputable character. Actually, what he's done is bring his private army. Um, uh, but nevertheless, the, the point, I think, is clear. And procedures are on the side of the pertinacious litigant. Uh, there is a raft of remedies to which the pertinacious litigant can, uh, uh, can refer, should the case go against him. He can demand a retrial. He can sack his lawyers and demand that the case be uh, begun again. Uh, he can refuse to comply with the court verdict. He can draw a sword to prevent the bailiff actually uh, imposing um, his will. Uh, and he can use a raft of techniques in order to delay things. Under these circumstances, the courts tend to come to negotiated positions. They tend to come to expedient solutions. 
they tend to come to midway positions between rival claims, just to bring an end to the business. They will split up properties, for instance. X and Y are both claiming, bringing thousands of people, thousands of documents, just divide the property up. Or they'll trade, trade a fines off against concessions. Uh, they'll make deals. In short, equity and expediency both frame the content of the law in individual cases. Adjudication is not resting on the basis of what we would call today judicial subsumption. If A, then B, and A, so B. Rather, it is the idea of justice and expediency that determine outcomes. All this, this scheme, of customary law and its practices. All of this is torn up in the 19th century. Codification becomes the watchword. Codification in the Prussian Civil Code of 1794, the Austrian Code of 1811. The idea is that the law will be enumerated and fixed and it will be mapped out. Courts will not be in a position to judge by equity or by expediency. Instead, they will have to fit the facts to the case, to the law as they have it. They will have to act, as Montesquieu put it, as the mouth that pronounces the word of the law, inanimate beings who can moderate neither its force nor its rigor. Hungary does not go through a process of codification, not a comprehensive one, but instead, it believes in the role of legislation. And from the 1830s onwards, this is what reformers do. They start introducing laws, statute laws that map out whole areas of human activity and subject it to uh, precise definitions and precise scheme of how one should act and what the content of the law should be. The 1830s and 1840s, this begins, and we have the first commercial laws being put down, the first uh, laws concerning uh, very controversially basic safety regulations and so on. These uh, begin to be put down. And this continues right through uh, into the 1860s when Hungary obtains home rule. The problem is that the legislation that Hungarians' parliaments put forward is it's lazy legislation. There are huge gaps in the law. The law basically puts out a series of ideas and guidelines. It doesn't really fill in the individual um, uh, components. At the same time, it's lazy in the sense that the legislators often just get hold of German laws and translate them into Hungarian. They think that they can apply what has been happening in Germany to 
uh, to conditions in Hungary. So in other words, there is a legislative gap that emerges. Some of the law is inadequate, it's just been copied from elsewhere. Others is partial with great enormous holes left in it. There are two responses, neither of which are admitted as legally valid. And the first of these is that the courts fill in the gaps. They start to fit in and put forward court decisions which then amplify the existing legislative frameworks. And the second is rather more ominous. It is the use of ministerial decree to fill in the gaps. Where the law is silent, agencies of the state start to intervene, putting through decrees, putting through uh, uh, provisions to amplify the law's content. So in other words, statutory law is weak and is reinforced, is substituted for and amplified by courier decisions, decisions of the courts, and secondly, by decrees. And it's at this point that custom returns. How are these interventions of the courts and of state agencies, how are these to be explained? And the response is, they are customary. They are customary instruments. There have always been courts making decisions, so the argument goes. And therefore, for courts to be making decisions now and amplifying the law, that is entirely consistent with Hungarian practice. And in respect of decrees, the same is maintained. The monarch has always had a right of supervision, and his ministers have taken over that right. Therefore, the right that they exert is itself of customary origin. Therefore, even though the origin of decree and custom is rooted in deficiencies in legislation, by relying upon decree and upon court decision, we are conforming to a customary tradition that has its roots in Hungary's great historical antiquity, that is fully in comport with the way Hungary and Hungarian historical development has always gone on. And the monument to this, if you like, to Hungarian medievalism is familiar, I think, to all of those who know Budapest, but I think most conveyed in this wonderful, if I can get it smaller, no. in this wonderful monument. This is the Hungarian National Archive. It originally had this enormous medieval spire attached to it. That unfortunately came down in 1945 and they haven't rebuilt it. Uh, the Hungarian National Archive is now a very squat uh, building without its medieval tower, that symbol of the medievalism that Hungary embraced at the end of the 19th century, and which is at the same time shown in the way that custom became the name 
whereby extra statutory instruments were adopted as norms in Hungarian legal practice. Now, I think the, the history, this is where the second part of the lecture begins, but don't worry, it's the much shorter part. The history of Hungarian law in Central Europe, I think, tells us something important about the region. My predecessors in the Masaryk chair are Robert Seaton Watson, there he is there, um, Reginald Betts, and Francis Carsten. One of the many questions with which they were all concerned was the historic relationship of Central Europe to Western Europe. For Seton, as for Masaryk, the key to Central Europe's past and future was empire and its legacy. Uh, national greatness and historical destiny have been subverted by empire, and the connectedness of Central Europe to Western Europe and the larger trends in European history had been attenuated. The two had different ideas about who the villain was. Uh, for Seton Watson, the villain was Hungary that had built an intolerant multinational empire. For Masaryk, uh, it was Germany and Germany's Austrian baggage handlers, as he called them, who had dominated the region. In the opinion of both, however, the nation was the new driving force in Central Europe, and it was the nation that would replace the big state which had dominated the region hitherto. Now, Carsten and Betts held to more material explanations, as one might expect of a former Marxist in the form of Carsten, and in the case of Betts, a Methodist who embraced Marxism and tobacco later on in life. For Carsten and Betts, it was the great price rise of the 16th century which made agriculture suddenly profitable and entrenched serfdom and noble hegemony on the land. This led to a growing differentiation between East and West. In both Betts and Carsten thus sought to explain in Carsten's words what went wrong in Central Europe's historical development. Laszlo Pater, uh, my former supervisor, who provides in many respects the link between Carsten's retirement in 1978 and today, uh, was similarly preoccupied. For Laszlo, Central Europe's backwardness was something that had always been there. As he remarked uh, once to me, where is the Hungarian Chartra? I think I said, it's in Romania. <laughs> Nevertheless, I think, uh, I think Laszlo's comment indicates one of the difficulties. Where does one set up the divisions between East and West that one is going to make the driving force of one's analysis? And I'm, I'm very conscious of time just to give you one anecdote very briefly. If people ask me, where Central, European, Central Europe is, um, which I get quite a lot, actually, uh, by being a professor of Central European history. Uh, uh, I always reply, um, 
by saying, I would refer you to Grieben's Guide to Central Europe, published in 1864, which includes a day trip to London. <laughs> More important to my mind is not backwardness per se, as the presumption of backwardness, particularly within the region itself. During the late 17th and 18th centuries, Central Europeans began to think that they were indeed backward. They visited the West. They saw its ships, factories, horse races, casinos, and energetic politics, all of which were missing back home. And as one of the most uh, critical, self-critical observers put it, the end of the 17th century, we are forever only giving foreigners occasion for hearty laughter. They are laughing at us, and they are right. Now, this sense of being left behind impelled a whole mass of responses, largely in the form of top-down remedies. The Polish dash to constitutionalism after 1788, Joseph II's total revolution of the 1780s, Hungary's reform period of the 1830s, neo-absolutism in the 1850s, and the communist uh, uh, experiment after 1945. Yet these remedies often in turn elicited their own criticisms of facadism, of artificiality, of form without substance. I'll just give two very brief quotations. Titu Maiorescu, very famous quotation regarding Romania. Before we had any village teachers, we created village schools. And before we had any professors, we opened universities. Before we had a culture, we created the Romanian Athenaeum and cultural associations. And likewise, Miroslav Kölliger, writing in the 1930s on observing the Hotel Esplanade in Zagreb, which you can visit with Saga holidays, I discover. And he comments, hot and cold water, French cuisine, roulette lifts, uniform bellboys, en pont France, en pont Francais, and just a few meters away, ducks in the standing water, open cesspits, stench, malaria, typhus, all grey, all disgusting, all offensive. The modernization of institutions thus provoked a response of its own in the form of a search for authenticity and for the discovery and recovery of traditional, historical, and even outmoded institutions. The rehabilitation of customary law in Hungary stands thus as a typical example of this trend for its reinvention was a much parter, a much larger part of a larger national reaction to Europeanization and Habsburg homogenization that manifested itself in this remarkable building. What A.P. Herbert described as the moss-grown outhouses of the law may also thus serve as a metaphor for the nation and for its historicized rebirth. History is often so misused for national ends, not least in parts of Central Europe today. Its mistreaters would do well to recall Masaryk's advice, delivered almost 100 years ago today, 
and he speaks here of the historical rights marshaled for political ends by Europe's big states. He says, there is history and history. In fact, history does not prove anything, for all facts are equally historical. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Martin. I'm not going to give a vote of thanks, which would involve putting the thanks to the vote. I will take it as read that we can thank Martin. A good, a great inaugural lecture should have two characteristics. The first one is it should lay out the stall as to what you're going to do in the future. And I very much look forward to, uh, to reading more about customary law. Um, secondly, it should give the audience something to think about. And it's certainly given me, and I think all of us, something to think about today. Customary law is really difficult. There is an antithesis between law and custom. Law is something which is in, in a way fixed, or not, not quite as fixed as we would like it. Custom is really just doing what we think is right and justifying it by reference to what we've done in the past. A customary law is there, uh, is the, the joining together of these two um, antitheses. Um, English lawyers, I know more about English lawyers than Hungarian, I have to admit. English lawyers have regularly justified the way that the law is on the basis that it's the custom of English, of the English. Um, in uh, uh, 2015, of course, everything comes from Magna Carta, but we know it doesn't. Um, but they'll justify it all on the basis of custom. Um, but then when one goes down below the surface, one goes into courts at the lower end of the scale, not these high-ranking common law courts, which Martin quite rightly says are not the same as customary courts. They're not. But if you go down to the lower level and you look at what goes on in, dare I call them, customary courts in England, um, you see something which seems to me very, very familiar in uh, what's happening in in Hungary. Um, we very rarely know how customary courts actually reach their decisions. Um, I did come across, though, something which was for uh, merchants, mercantile cases, um, marine insurance cases in the 16th century, at a time that they were being judged clearly by merchant custom. And the way that it worked is that if there was a doubt about the custom, each party would get a piece of paper and they would go around collecting signatures from their friends as to which side the custom was on. And of course, you always signed the paper that said um, it was on the side of the person who had proffered the paper to you. And many people, it was said, signed both sides perfectly happily. <laughs> and one suspects that that's the way in which these things did work. As well, though, we've got to remember that when we look as historians, we only look at what's recorded, so we don't actually see what's really going on. We see what the person doing the recording thought was going on. And as I listened to Martin, um, I tried to translate into Latin what the, um, these wonderfully customary peasants, or whoever in the Pays de Vaux had said, and it seemed to be the opening of Justinian's Institutes. It's exactly that, isn't it? Yeah. And I can't imagine that these 15th century peasants, when asked what law was, scratched their head and just came out with the same as what the Emperor Justinian had uh, written down uh, a thousand years previously. Um, it's a clerk who knows what they want. Anyway, enough from me. Um, there is another very good thing about inaugural 
lectures, and that is that they don't have questions, which means that we don't have to delay any longer before allowing Martin the freedom to go and have the first drink of the evening. Thank you very much indeed, Martin.